Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. We're coming to you from Tourist in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Each week we take a closer look at the business issues making up the news. COP28 has just wrapped up and while it might not feel like it, in many ways 2023 has been a big year in fighting climate change. Significant growth in renewable energy around the world and COP28's final text stating that the world will transition away from fossil fuels was significant. It does feel like the world is finally starting to move towards a new, greener future. In this edition, we look at the challenges ahead, and they are many, and the scale of the task of transitioning the world away from fossil fuels cannot be underestimated. To do this, we need massive investment in renewables and a new way of financing and doing business. To discuss all of this, we're joined by two experts well-placed to discuss the coming transition. Alison Atherton and Gordon Noble are both research directors with the Institute of Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Alison Atherton and Gordon Noble, welcome to Think Business Futures. Thank you. Thank you. Look, in many ways, 2023 may be seen as a pivotal year in the world coming to terms with climate change. Um, there's been lots to talk about, but let's start with the scale of the task that is still ahead of us. The two of you recently wrote in the conversation that Australia will need to spend something like three quarters of a trillion dollars just on power generation to reach net zero by 2050. It, it, it's fair to say the task ahead of us is enormous. Would you agree with that, Alison? Look, I think that it is an enormous task. We can't underestimate the scale of it. But at the same time, uh, I do think we have the resources available to meet that. Uh, we just need to have the political will and also, I guess, the right um, systems and regulations and incentives in place to ensure that, for example, the the money that we need is is flowing to the right places when we need it. So we need to make sure that we've removed any of the impediments to those flows of finance. Um, and I think it's it is still doable. It's just within reach, but we definitely need to uh, pretty rapidly increase the pace of the transition because it's just not happening fast enough. And Gordon, there definitely has been an acceleration in the last couple of years. How do you see the task ahead of us and, and are we finally taking that task seriously? Yeah, look, I, I think that's right. I, I've been involved in the the conversations around sustainable finance for, you know, for many, many years. And I think what we can see right now is is that um, uh, we've moved to a stage where we're really talking about flow of finance. So for many years, we we're talking about, you know, climate, there was almost a constant education to say climate change is a is a risk. It's really, it's happening. Uh, the the good thing is that we're moving into now. How do we actually deploy capital? So that's the the positive. But as Alison's saying, that the task is is it's a, it's a big one in front of us. The um the positive one, if from an Australian perspective, is we've got a financial system that is quite uh, quite large and growing. Our super system is going to grow ultimately to nine trillion dollars. So, you know, we've got the capacity within our, our our finance system to to meet the challenges. But it's um yeah, you can see we're moving now to a stage where it is all about uh, getting the the foundations in place to actually deploy capital, which is a positive. And and yes, the political will is moving, but it's also, I think, fair to say too, there's an awareness now that this task is not going to be done by government alone. So so business and government are going to have to come together and work together. 
are we finally starting to see the, those sort of things happening? And, and and is Australia playing catch up in this area? Look, it's one of the arguments that we've made. It, we uh, Australia, that is, was. We've been pretty slow in terms of having a national position around uh, sustainable finance. We've seen a lot of developments globally, um, the EU, the UK, uh, the G20 Sustainable Finance Working Group driving a lot of um, uh, sort of uh, behaviours and building foundations. And it's fair to say Australia was not not really um, part of that leading leading pack. Um, and I guess that's where we're at now is uh, we would argue that if you saw it in the terms of, say, a, a cycle race like a peloton is that the things that we're seeing now will get us back to the peloton. They don't t- they don't actually take us into leadership position. That's the next step that we have to take. But they take us back to the pack of, of those countries who are who are sort of driving some of the sustainable finance practices. So so that's a positive in terms of where we're going. But, yeah, we were. We, def- we definitely were behind the peloton and we had um, a bit of catch-up to do. Now, uh, Alison, you touched on this before that, you, that we need to see an acceleration in the pace of, of us tackling this, this challenge. Uh, one of the figures that I saw, which was just an astounding figure, it's a global number for the world, by the year 2030, we're going to have to be investing in excess of $4 trillion US dollars a year and that number will be going up. Um, four trillion US dollars is roughly the size of the uh, the output of Japan. Alison, are these numbers achievable? And and the fact that these numbers are also going to have to have to grow to meet this challenge is it achievable? I think it is achievable, um, but it's definitely going to require um, finance to come from more than government, as you mentioned before. We need private finance to be involved, and we need philanthropy to be, to be involved. And we might need to look at, um, you know, restructuring of some of the financial architecture to make it happen. It's definitely not a small task, but I think it is doable. Um, This was something that was looked at in a little bit of detail at the recent uh, COP um, climate summit. And, uh, you know, we're looking now at blended finance instruments, which brings together finance from government and the private sector and sometimes philanthropy as well. So looking at different types of instruments to bring in that private sector funding. Um, There was also some discussion, and it's actually in the text of some of the COP um, agreements that, uh, you know, looking now even considering levies, uh, for example, on fossil fossil fuel companies to try and uh, to bring in the funding that we need. Um, so it's gonna it's gonna require um, different ways of thinking, I think, to make it happen. But there is uh, again, there is enough money out there. It's just that it needs to be directed towards the task of transition, and we need to bring all of the instruments at our disposable at our disposal to make that happen. And this has already been touched on. Australia has a huge pot of cash that it's currently sitting on in the form of superannuation. How important is that we get the super industry on board, Gordon? Yeah, look, absolutely. The uh, um, and look, there's there's been a bit of a history. It's worth sort of unpacking that, you know, the growth of the superannuation industry has also uh, helped uh, support growing our um, the ASX and uh, uh, has enabled a lot of investment in the economy. 
If you think about, for instance, the mining industry, the the massive investments that have been made over the last ten or fifteen years, you know, the the ability to have a superannuation system uh, that is not just um, it's constantly growing. You know, we're going to have more contributions going into super funds over the next uh, the next decade or so, and that's one of the the important things in terms of where do you find the finance from. If you know, we're going to have a constantly growing superannuation pool of capital. We know that that superannuation capital will be going offshore because it's actually getting so large that it's finding it hard to deploy capital uh, in Australia. So, the, so super funds are naturally looking for investments offshore, and that's the question that that you know we focus on. How do we how do we ensure that we we have a superannuation system that also can align with um, you know what we need as a nation, and that's about getting those systems um, and incentives in, in in place so that you can actually flow the capital to the investments that you need. But our super super system, you know, it's twenty years the superannuation guarantee that's been really, you know, plus it's been it's been going for now, and it's now matured. So we've now got you know some very sophisticated superannuation funds. They're getting uh, larger pools of capital. They're quite sophisticated in the way they invest, and that's the positive that they can actually start to really flow flow the investment. They you know, and and the other positive is that they're really starting to understand you know climate risks and the opportunities as well. And look, what what systems and policies do we need for the super industry to feel? comfortable in investing in renewable projects? Because uh, I'm guessing this is uh, something that uh, is going to be new to them and that they would need something in place for them to be able to justify this kind of investment. Yeah, look, it's – it's and one of the key things is to understand how our super system works. So from an individual perspective, um, we can move our, our super, superannuation fund from one provider to another provider. And what that uh, that means for the super funds is that they they're basically required to make sure that they they can they have liquidity for their investments so that they can meet you know, their redemptions and they can meet any requests to move move funds funds around. Our system's quite unique in that con- in context. It's different to other nations' um, pension system. But what that means in terms of renewable energy projects is we have to find the ways that align to the way super, superannuation capital invests. So the ability to invest through listed companies, for instance, is one way because that provides the liquidity the superannuation funds um, need. Uh, and we see that with investments that super funds already make in things like AGL, uh, Origin, etc., then there's a whole opportunity in terms of larger scale infrastructure projects. Um, so super funds have been large, large investors in everything from airports and ports um, around the world, including here in Australia. So if we structure things so that we're creating large investments for them, there's certainly, um, you know, they they've got the appetite so long as we can make sure that we're we're, we're addressing some of the things that they need from a regulatory perspective. And you're talking about how big super is going to be growing. It's currently around $3.5 trillion, but the number you mentioned before, I think it was $9 trillion. So there certainly is a lot of potential here for investment, isn't there? Yeah, that, that, that that's right. And because, you know, we all, you know, we've got our, our contributions that from a, as an employee go into into our superannuation, that will constantly grow over the next, uh, the next decade. So it is really around aligning that you know, yeah, you know, that growth as well as the capital that we've that we've already got in the system. So as it heads to to nine trillion, it's got that capacity to um uh to make a lot of these investments that we're going to need. The the other opportunities that we start to build sustainable finance as a as a hub, as in a financial market here for Australia, so that 
we don't just access Australian super funds uh, who can invest to support this transition, but actually global capital. Because if we create the right the right environment, then there'll be pension funds from around the world who will have an appetite to to invest uh, here in Australia if we can um, if we can re- really open up those opportunities. Now, one of the changes that is coming in July twenty four, but I think it's an interesting one we should talk about, is that uh, that our corporations are going to have to disclose impacts of climate on their business. Um, Alison, how significant a change will this be? Well, a lot of the the large businesses that will um, initially be required to disclose are probably already undertaking some form of disclosure. Um, it will pick up those who aren't doing that, but what it will really help to do is to standardise and, and raise the quality of the information that's being provided. One of the big issues that investors in particular have currently is that there's an awful lot of information being disclosed, but it's not necessarily presented in a way that is easy to understand or translate, or it's not necessarily providing them with the information that they need. Uh, And what the disclosure requirements will do is to align those disclosures um, across all the companies that are disclosing and also with international disclosures. So the um, disclosure standard that's being proposed is aligned with the International Sustainability Standards Board disclosure uh, that is going to be adopted probably by many other countries around the world and um, other countries that already have mandatory disclosure also aligning with that. So it just helps to bring consistency, greater transparency, greater quality to the information And that helps to reduce one of the barriers to investment um, because it helps to give investors greater certainty around the sustainability credentials of what they're investing in. It should also help to uh, start to provide a clearer view of which businesses are really addressing climate risk and, and looking for climate opportunities and which ones are not really there yet or are perhaps going to find it difficult to manage the transition. Are you also expecting that this move will also, I guess, um, lay certain companies bare for where where their risks are, where the problems in the underlying business because of climate change, so it would actually have an impact on their ability to raise funds? Are, are you expecting there to be fallout from, from these changes? Look, I think it's possible that that, that that will happen because we might start to see some information being disclosed that wasn't being disclosed previously. Um, It also, though, provides companies with the opportunity to explain how they're managing those risks. So there's a very big difference between disclosing a risk and uh, not saying how you're going to address that risk. But the disclosure is going to require companies to, to talk about what their mitigation strategies are. Um, And if they have a transition plan to also disclose the transition plan, we'd actually like to see um, the guidance around transition planning going further. And there is uh, a commitment from the government that they'll issue further guidance on that next year, because that's really critical. The transition planning is uh, the company saying what the targets are that they're trying to achieve um, and how they're going to achieve them in some detail. Uh, again, some standardization around that would be really useful because it's possible to put out a lot of information, um, but not necessarily easy to interpret that information if it's presented in lots of different ways. And I think that's going to be really critical to to helping investors understand really where the risks are and which 
companies and and sectors even are most exposed. I mean, I think there's a little bit of a common sense understanding of that already, but I think that the the disclosure requirements will just bring a spotlight on that. And I think it's an interesting thing we should tease out here because you know comp- large companies who have declared that they're going to be net zero by 2050 are going to have to actually put some some uh, detail on the table. Uh, again, this seems to me uh, an important an important change and an important thing that we obviously need to see. But uh, I would imagine there'll be some businesses where they can say that they're going to be net zero by 2050, but it'll be very hard for them to de- demonstrate how they will be. Again, are you expecting to be any fallout from these changes? Uh, look, I definitely think that it will um, bring greater scrutiny to those net zero pledges, and I, and I hope that it does. Uh, there is already guidance on greenwashing um, that that says that if you've made a net zero pledge or you've um, got targets, that you should have a, a plan as to how to achieve those. Otherwise, it could be misleading. Um, but I don't think that's an area that the regulator has really um, gone deep into yet in terms of scrutinising those claims. Uh, I think that the ability for investors and other stakeholders to scrutinise those claims more closely because of the disclosure um, will definitely um, start some conversations, I think, in in boardrooms and with um, investor relations teams around how they're actually going to explain the lack of um, of plans if that's the case. And so uh, it can only really help with um, engagement and uh, and progress uh, on transition planning. And it's interesting you mentioned that word greenwashing because it is clearly is going to become a much more significant uh, worry, uh, especially if we're talking about the levels of investment that are going to be going into our companies and into uh, uh, into renewables and all those sorts of things. Um Gordon, what what steps need to be taken to to, to minimise this problem of green greenwashing? Yeah, look, I, I think the first thing is transparency is, is key. So, one of the the good initiatives uh, that we saw, excuse me, uh, one of the good initiatives that we saw uh, uh, from ASIC, the corporate regulator, is that they did they did issue uh, uh, corporate guidance. So it's called Information Note Two Seven One. And, and really, that was the first time that ASIC um, really became involved around uh, around greenwashing. Uh, this, and, and we know that also ASIC has some some money that the federal government has uh, has provided, which they they are able to to use to take uh, effectively litigation um, uh, around corporates and investors if if um, if they've made you know what could be seen to be misleading uh, misleading statements. So I think that's a positive that we're starting to get some of these foundations. The fact that the regulators are moving into this space because they they weren't in this space before, and coming back to uh, this was one of the the areas I guess to use that peloton analogy that we were reasonably weak. We were behind the pack because you know we didn't have the the regulators being being active in this space around greenwashing. The question is then where we go. So as Alison's indicating, we then need you know guidance from the the, the regulators in terms of well what is uh, what is transition planning, uh, what 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 should be the metrics that should be provided, etc., uh, so that you get comparability 
you know the this word that's being used uh, internationally around interoperability is a key one here so you want to see that in this area of greenwashing because otherwise we we as consumers it's very difficult for us to be able to to make sense of all the transition plans and the climate change action plans that you'll you that they will be seeing so we do need some further further sort of progress from the regulators as they move into this space and we're also going to see a green bond market. Uh, how will that work, and how significant is that move? Yeah, look, look it's it's really uh, it's a really critical um, intervention, and just to understand why. So, uh, uh, government bonds play a really critical role in terms of setting benchmarks for for interest rates in the economy more broadly. So, there was talk a uh, you know uh, some time ago when Peter Costello was the treasurer. Uh, about actually getting rid of uh, uh, bonds uh, at all Australian government bonds um, because because at that time there were some surpluses and it wasn't needed. And one of the things that the um, the financial market said to the Treasurer was that this is really critical having Australian bonds issue because it basically sets everything in terms of, say, business lending and the interest rates, et cetera. It sets that benchmark. That's the same in the case of, of green bonds. So if we get the Australian government issuing a green bond, Really, the opportunity is 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 not so much whether the Australian government can can finance uh, projects, uh, green projects, but can we actually create a a green finance market? So, can we use the fact that the Australian comes in and sets a benchmark to actually support the development of you know a green lending uh, market, so banks can provide uh, you know further lending in this area, and it's the frameworks that back this that become critical as well. So. Um, it looks perhaps uh, in the scheme of things like a small step, as in it won't, you know, the bonds themselves won't actually, uh, uh, they're not the critical factor in terms of uh, changing markets, but it's the entrance of the Australian government into into green, uh, green bonds that's the critical thing. So very important um, uh, to see this uh, happen. Alison, do you welcome this move? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's evidence, um, as Gordon mentioned, that, when sovereigns um, issue green bonds, it helps to raise the volume of um, total green lending, but also importantly, it sort of sets a standard and a benchmark for green lending, and it helps to raise the quality of those products across the market. So it's definitely a welcome move. One of the challenges you both have written about is the lack of green financing skills in Australia. Uh, how serious a challenge is that, and, and what's, what particular skills are missing? Yeah, so we undertook a survey um, last year that looked at this and uh, it was really speaking to sustainable finance professionals who are probably best placed to to speak to the green skills issue um, and identify that there's a gap currently between demand for sustainable finance skills and supply of those skills. Um, and that gap is going to grow. And anecdotally, we've heard that as well, that it's it's very difficult to recruit um, skilled people. Um that gap's going to grow because, you know, with disclosure requirements and the, the growing um, need for investment in um, sustainable investments, then we, we're going to see more need for uh, people who have an understanding both of the financial system, but also of the sustainability issues so that they can really understand what the investments are and, and where the opportunities are. Um, currently, the way this is being addressed across the system is is quite patchy. What we're seeing is that the uh, the larger companies are able to attract the talent, and that's going to leave a deficit 
Um, if we don't start addressing this now, then it could really start to impede the transition because uh, we've seen it in other sectors, for example, in the renewable energy infrastructure sector, where a few of our colleagues at the Institute uh, have worked in um, the research around that job market. Um, they're playing catch up there now. There's a shortage across Australia of the skills that are needed for the rollout of renewable energy infrastructure, um, electricians, electrical engineers. Government is now starting to address that, uh, but it's not a small task because it requires um, the education sector uh, in, in the case of um, renewable energy and the TAFE, the voluntary education tertiary sector, to be brought on board to develop courses uh, to roll those out. That all takes time. And so if we apply that to the financial system, uh, then we're going to see that same kind of lag in, in developing those skills and competencies across the system. So we're going to need um, upskilling both from uh, current current uh, finance professionals, but also new graduates coming into the system with those skills. And that's going to require new courses, um, professional bodies to be on board. But coordination as well is really critical here because uh, the training providers need to have confidence that when they're developing training products, that there's going to be demand for those and that they're meeting the needs of the financial system. Now, it sounds like there's going to be a tremendous skill shortage across multiple industries here. Um, I mean, Australia is, is well-placed with its education sector to, to fill that void, but it does sound like there's a huge challenge coming and the challenge is coming very soon. We're kind of playing catch up a little bit on, on lots of, of different aspects. And unfortunately, the skills issue is one that tends to be um, thought about last uh, you know, is being thought about already in other jurisdictions that we're seeing that being addressed, for example, in Singapore and Hong Kong and Ireland and the UK. Um, we're a little bit slower to to get started on that here and to really take it seriously. Um, and Gordon and myself have been trying to to talk about this uh, as much as we can. Um, it, it's just that there's so much to do and uh, there are so many issues that need to be addressed. And I think I guess it's a bit of a perception that maybe skills will just sort itself out, but I think it really has to be systemically addressed. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to sort itself out in time, and that's the critical thing. It's it's the urgency of everything, really, that we need to start addressing. A lot of the conversation on skills at the moment is really focused on the individual. So, so we know that individuals uh, are going to be the ones that do the training courses. So one of the areas that we're really advocating is that we need to look at this from the institution's perspective. So what we want to see from a, from a financial system perspective is we want to know that the institutions are competent around around sustainability uh, and, and therefore you need some, some ability to work out what competence actually is and whether, whether an organisation has that level of competence. We see this with areas like, for instance, cybersecurity. You wouldn't expect that all the initiatives would just be on the individual. You'd expect the institution to have the systems and processes in place so that so that they're they're maintaining that cybersecurity for the for consumers for the products that they offer. It's the same sort of thing here with um, sustainability, sustainable finance. We we need the institutions to take some responsibility here, and then we need some the regulators also to step up in terms of being able to really engage with the um, the, the sector around the competence. Um, the and the issue with those gaps is the we we need a, a mechanism to know when a skills gap emerges because things are changing so much. 
Um, and we, we don't want to find that situation where uh, a skill gap has, has emerged, no one is really aware of it, and it's then led to effectively flow of capital stopping in a particular area. And that's ultimately then about transition. Finally, let's talk about COP28. It's wrapped up. Um, how significant was this particular COP? Yeah, look, it's uh, every COP twenty eight of them. So there's been there's been a fair few of these conversations, um, and like always, you'd want you want the pace to move faster, um, and and there's some areas of disappointment. Um, but look, in terms of uh, to look at the glass half full side, so the glass half full is that some of the de- areas of debate have now started to change. Some of the issues that were always pretty much um, uh, almost hidden from debate are now really front and center. Uh, in terms of the conversations, so they're out in the public domain, and, and that's the 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 arguments about phase out versus transition. And I think one of the reasons that's the case is that this is this is actually happening. So this is now there's a realization that this is something that you know um, uh, institutions, uh, countries, etc., nations actually need to 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 really really be serious about. One of the other positives I saw um, is um, so there's a lot of people at, at uh, in Dubai, hundred thousand or almost, and uh, and it, the nature of the COPs is changing, so that it's becoming a place for conversations around investment. So you're seeing a whole lot of the finance system participants involved in conversations. So whilst you're focusing, we you know we all need to focus on the text and the outcome of that comes out of the uh, uh, the ultimate uh, um, uh, text that comes from from the uh, from nations uh, reaching agreement. At the same time, there's lots and lots of conversations that are going on uh, uh, at, at COPs nowadays, and increasingly at this one, which are really around the flow of uh, capital. So, so I tend to look at it from a, you know, the fact that they're still talking, the fact that we're making progress. It's not what you know. It's obviously not what we we want, but there are some some green shoots I, I saw from this. Alison, were you happy with this particular COP? Uh- I think probably similar to Gordon, other areas of disappointment and uh, some positive areas as well. Overall, uh, I just don't think that the level of ambition in the final text really matches the urgency of what the science is telling us. Um, It's very clear that we need to phase out fossil fuels, uh, and there was a lot of debate over that, and we've ended up with text that is quite a lot weaker than phasing out. However, it is the first time that fossil fuels have explicitly been called out in the text of a COP. So that, I guess you could say, is progress. Um, Agree with Gordon that the the conversations around financing are positive. Um, Really, we would expect a much stronger outcome in finance probably from next year's COP because um, the the finance that has been pledged so far, those pledges run out in 2025. And so next year we'll be really focused on landing what comes after 2025 in terms of uh, the commitments and financing um, from developed countries. That's going to be really critical. So I think next year's COP will be really interesting to to keep uh, an eye on in terms of the financing space. Another positive is that um, there's now an agreement on a loss and damage fund for developing nations. Positive that that's been put in place, um, and I think that was a little bit of a, uh, a diplomatic coup from the presidency to get that agreed really early on in the COP so that it didn't derail other negotiations. Um, at the same time, the level of commitments into that fund are are currently far short of what's going to be needed, um, but it's it's a start, and so uh, 
yes, we can take some positives from it, but I'd really like to see um, a much stronger outcome from next year's COP, particularly around financing. On that note, Alison Atherton and Gordon Noble, thanks for being on Think Business Futures. Thanks very much, Anthony. Pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of Tour CR and is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. If you want to listen to this program again or share it with your friends, just go to tourcr.com or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for Think Business Futures for this year. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening. Thank you.